camping out at today. And uh, just walking through this uh, small section of Scripture at the end of Matthew 28. And let me just begin this way. The First Baptist Church of Ocean Way exists to glorify God by making disciples who will serve the world. And the implication is right, starting right where we are and going as far as um, God will take us. And this one sentence sums up our vision, our mission, our goal. But yet the question becomes, what are we supposed to do with it? So what are we supposed to do with this um, vision, this mission statement? In Habakkuk chapter 2, um, God talks to his prophet and tells his prophet Habakkuk um, these words. He says, write the vision down, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. And that's the point. We don't just want to write this um, vision statement, mission statement on our bulletins. We don't just want to memorize it. We want to run with it. We want to live it out for the sake of God's glory over his church. And over the last two weeks, we have unpacked the reality of our existence, why we exist as a church. And in case you weren't here two weeks ago, the answer is this. It's not for you. We don't exist for you. We exist for him. What we do in this time together is not about us. It's about him. And that's kind of our focus last week. We glorify him. We come together in a worship gathering like this in order to make much of him, not ourselves. And then this morning, we turn to the second action of our mission statement, which is making disciples. So we are called to glorify God by making disciples. We glorify God by becoming like Christ, and then we glorify God by leading others to become like Christ. The command to make disciples represents the marching orders that Jesus gave to his followers, what we call the Great Commission. Sadly, and recently, the, the Barna Group, who does many different surveys, especially within the church, released the results of a survey that said 51% of churchgoers could not identify the Great Commission. 51% of churchgoers could not identify the mission that Jesus gave for the church. And of greater concern, perhaps, is the other 49% who were familiar with it. Many of those just presupposed that the job of the Great Commission was only for the pastors. We are in a sad state of affairs if that is the truth that runs throughout the church. And I pray that this morning, we will see that the Great Commission is not a call for a few of us. The Great Commission is a command given by Christ to all of us. So let me say it again. It's not just a call for a few of us. It's a command given by Christ for all of us. And there is absolutely no question about what Jesus wanted his followers to do. And I pray today that during this time, God would put in our hearts a holy discontent. I know that sounds weird because Paul tells us we're supposed to be content in all things. But I pray that God would put a holy discontent in our hearts by which we would grow tired of having biblical knowledge and never working that knowledge out in practicality. That we would grow discontent with living in a world where we just call ourselves Christians, but yet we don't really ever follow Christ at all. And, and here's the strange fact, and let me just kind of lay it out this morning. The first followers of Jesus Christ did not call themselves Christians. Did you know that? The first followers of Jesus did not call themselves Christians. That was actually a derogatory term um, given to them by those outside of the Jesus community. So if, if Christ's followers didn't call themselves Christians, then what did they call themselves? And that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. And the answer is they called themselves disciples. That's what they refer to themselves as. Consider this. Um, the word Christian only appears in the New Testament three times. The word disciple appears 280 one times. 
So three times versus 281 times. For every word Christian in the New Testament, the word disciple is used 93.67 times. And that's only because I run it up. It's literally 93.66666, but I'm not doing that here. That's way too many sixes for us to bring out on a Sunday morning in church. So we'll just round it up for the sake of that. But what I, I want to show you this morning is this. Our use of the term Christian, if we're not careful, obscures the fact that a lot of people who call themselves Christians, first of all, they're not even following Christ. They're not, they don't even follow. I mean, people check the box, I'm a Christian. And if you have a conversation with them, what's the last thing Jesus did for you? He saved me 30 years ago. Well, what, what, what's he done in the last week? And it's like nothing. You call yourself a Christian, which means Christ follower, and you're not even following Christ. And then um, many people who claim to be Christians aren't disciples. A disciple is a follower, and not just a follower, but a follower who adheres to the teachings of Christ. So are we following Christ, and then are we obeying him? Are we doing what he has called us to do? Let me say it very clearly today, and I'm just going to get stirred up from the beginning. The most miserable people that exist in this world don't exist outside of here. They exist inside the church because the most miserable people in the world are people who know God's will and who refuse to do it. And the church is filled up with them. The church is filled up with people who know God's will. They refuse to do it, and they're miserable. They're miserable. Why? Because God's not going to bless you with joy if you choose to live apart from obedience to him. God's not going to say, you have it your way. Here's my blessings anyway. That's not the picture. And we're going to see that today, I pray, um, in a fresh and a, in a new way. Many professing Christians, unfortunately, stop well short of actually following Christ. I think of the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he says this, Christianity without the living Christ is inevitably Christianity without discipleship. And Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. In such a religion, there is a trust in God, but no following of Christ. Discipleship without Jesus Christ is a way of our own choosing. It may be the ideal way, but it is devoid of all promise. Jesus will certainly reject it. And here's what he's saying. Any religion that we come up with and call Christian that doesn't lead to us following Christ and obeying him, Jesus rejects that religion. Jesus rejects it. He stands against it. That is not it. And let me just go a step further. No, dis no disrespect at all to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but Christians are called to, to more than just being disciples. Now, we are absolutely in we're called to embrace the cost of discipleship. We're all called to deny ourselves count the cost, deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. All of us are called to that, but Jesus calls us to more than just that. We're also called to take other people with us in following him. We're called to lead other people to know him and to grow in him. And the question I want to ask you this morning is this, and we're asked again this morning is this, is the word of God, the word that you receive right now, the word that um, you receive each and every week, is that word spreading through you or is that word stopping with you? What do we do with the word of God? Do we let it just stop with us and it never reaches anyone else? If that's the case, then we become just like the Dead Sea, meaning we have inlets, but we don't have outlets and everything about us becomes dead. Or are we like the Sea of Galilee? Do we have inlets and outlets where the word of God is flowing in us and the word of God is flowing out of us for the sake of God's glory? Will the word of God this morning stop with you or will the word of God spread through you? That is the question. So let's look at the word of God and let's hear the, 
the closing words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word um, together. And it says this, beginning at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come again to your word by your spirit. We ask that you would lead us in a fresh and a new way to fulfill the mission that you have given to us as your church. That we would glorify you, God, with our lives. We would glorify you in this gathering, but also we would make disciples. We would lead people to become followers of Jesus Christ who will then obey Jesus Christ. Lord, just have your way to show us in a fresh and a new way your command. Not just for a few of us, but for all of us. And help us, God, to give ourselves to that. Speak, oh God, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So think about this. The disciples, of course, minus Judas, are back in Galilee at least a week after the resurrection of Christ. Some think that it's closer to the end of the 40-day period of Christ appearing after his resurrection. But in this moment, Jesus has something that he um, views to be important that he wants to share with his disciples. And what we know as the Great Commission that he gives to them. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to unpack together through basically verses 18 through 23 monumental truths that if we will, as a church, wholeheartedly give ourselves to them, it will totally change the direction of this church for the good. It will totally change the direction of this church in the best way possible for good. So three things that we basically we must do as a faith family if we are going to obey the commands of Christ. First is this, we must trust in the authority of Christ. We must trust in the authority of Christ. Now, in, in Shakespeare's King Lear, and I know most of you read that at least once a week, but in, in Shakespeare's King Lear, he pictures the Earl of Kent coming in disguise to King Lear. And the king um, basically asked the um, Earl of Kent, what do you want? And the Earl of Kent said, I would serve you. To which the king said, Why? And then comes the famous answer from the Earl of Kent. He says, I would serve you because there is something in your countenance that I would willingly call master. And the king says, what? And the Earl of Kent said, authority. There is authority in your countenance by which I will gladly and, and humbly submit to you as master. And then think about the words of Jesus here in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now let's stop for a second and let's acknowledge, does that sound weird to any of us that Jesus would say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me when we think about, well, wasn't Jesus, wasn't he there when the earth was created? Wasn't he sustaining? Wasn't he appearing in the New Testament showing his power and might? So how can Jesus now all of a sudden say, I have authority? Didn't he have it before? And here's what we have to understand. The reality is that Jesus was, always has been, always will be God. Jesus did not become authoritative when he came and wrapped himself in flesh. He did not become authoritative when he rose from the dead. But here's the distinction. 
before the incarnation, before Jesus came in the flesh, God the Son existed with all authority. So he had all authority. The Son of God has always had total authority over heaven and earth. But when Jesus came to earth and did um, the great work of redemption once for all, sacrificing himself for your sin and my sin, in that moment, God exalted him after the resurrection, not just as God, but now for the first time as the God-man, as the perfect one who was able, the only one able to unite heaven and earth. So Jesus as the God-man, the perfect God-man, is now saying, because of his mission, I now have all authority in heaven and on earth as the God-man. And when we look back to the Gospels, we realize that his authority is undeniable. Just think with me. We see Jesus in the Gospels. He had authority over demons. He had authority over diseases, authority over all disabilities, the blind, the lame, the deaf, the mute, lepers, all being healed by his power. He had authority over nature by which he tells the storm to stop and it just hushes because that's the power that he has. He had authority over sin by which Jesus claimed to be able to forgive the sins of others. He had authority even over death. Jesus doesn't say that he will bring about the resurrection. He says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he will live for ever is the the picture that we see his his authority is undeniable but also his authority is unstoppable jesus has all authority and because he has all authority what comes next is going to happen the great commission is going to happen the gospel to all nations is going to happen so it's at this point that we begin to realize that the success of our individual lives and the success of this church isn't dependent upon who we are and what we bring to the table god isn't interested god's not saying okay i want you guys to all lay out on the table what you can bring so i can see how i'm going to use it no, the success of this church isn't dependent upon what we bring to the table. The success of this church is dependent upon who Jesus is and what he brings to the table. And what he brings to the table is everything. It is everything. He brings it all to the table. He brings all authority to the table. That is where our success is based upon. Think about those two words, all authority. Let me just break it down even more today just to Keep being redundant. Jesus has authority over Satan, over demons, over angels, authority over the natural universe, natural objects and laws. He has authority over stars and galaxies and planets and meteorites. He has authority over plants and animals, both great and small. Authority over all parts and functions of the human body, every breath that we take, every beat of our heart, every signal from our brains to the rest of our body. He has authority over all diseases. He has authority over all disappointments. He has authority over nations and governments, over all armies and weapons and terrorists, over war and crime and violence. He has authority over business and finances over um, education and research, discovery. Jesus has authority, get this, even over science. He has authority over it and revealing it. He has authority over families and neighborhoods. He has authority over the church. And Jesus has authority over every soul and every moment of every life that has ever lived and will ever live. He has all authority. 
understand that Jesus doesn't just have partial authority. Jesus doesn't just have most of the authority. He has all authority. And because he has all authority as the God-man within the Godhead, that means that no one else has any authority. So because God, because Jesus has it all, it means, get this, it means I don't have any, and it means you don't have any. You, you can't stand against him. He has all authority. The world that we have entered is a place where every person, every location, everything is under the authority of Christ. And what that means is this. Because he has all authority, every single person in this world or who will ever be in this world will be accountable to him. He has all authority. We will all be accountable to him. We will all have to give an account to him because he is the authoritative one. He has authority in heaven and on earth because he is God. Therefore, we trust in, we submit to his authority, knowing that everything that comes next, meaning the Great Commission, depends on it, depends on his authority. So trust in the authority of Christ over your life, in the midst of your disappointments, in the midst of your diseases, in the midst of whatever else is going on in your life, the circumstances that you didn't choose, trust his authority. He has power over it all. But then second, we must not only trust the authority of Christ. Second, we must carry out the assignment of Christ. And this is where we're going to uh, dig in a little deeper. We must carry out the assignment of Christ. Jesus said this. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is what we call the Great Commission. It's not the Great Suggestion. It's not Jesus saying, if you get around to it or if you feel like it, this is a command. Jesus is saying, if you are my disciple, I'm calling you to make disciples. I love the words of the discipleship guru. His name's Robbie Gallaty. He says this, when the church becomes an end in itself, it will end. When Sunday school and life groups, as great as they are, become an end in themselves, they will end. When worship services become an end in itself, they will end. What we need is for discipleship to become the goal, and then the process never ends. The process is fluid because when we give ourselves to God's mission, there will always be people coming to Christ and people who need to grow then in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and it won't end. It won't end, and it won't end, and we continue to give ourselves to that. The fundamental reality is that we must come back to the, man, the command of Christ for this, His church, which is make disciples. Let me say this very clearly, and please hear me. Nowhere in this book does God promise to bless your plans. You know, we love to present our plans to God and say, God, please bless this. I, I've worked it all out, God. I've come up with all the contingencies. God, I'm pretty sure this is a great plan for my life. All I need you to do, God, is sign off on it. God has never promised to bless our plans, but God has promised to bless his plan. He has promised to bless his plan, and his plan is using us to make much of himself, using us to see people saved and grow in the grace and knowledge of, of him. And just think about this. Let's, let's dive into this. First of all, we are going. Jesus says, he says, go, therefore. Now, anytime you see the word therefore, what's the question we're supposed to ask? So what is the word therefore? Therefore. So the word therefore is pointing us back to Jesus just saying, I have all authority. And not just authority. What Jesus is saying is, I don't have just authority over everything you see. I have authority over you. And this is what I'm telling you to do. Go. 
But here's the point. The word go is not a command. It's amazing. It's not a command. The command is make disciples. What Jesus is saying when he says go, basically he means as you're going or because you are already going or since you're going, make disciples. Think of it this way. Where is the church at at 10 a.m. on Monday? Where is the church at at 3 p.m. on Tuesday? Where is the church at at 8 p.m. on Friday? You know where we're at? We're going. We're going. We're out in the world all of those times. It's what we are doing. We're busy and we're, we're going. It's a beautiful picture. And the point is, as we receive the word of God, we then share the word of God with others. It's crazy that we hear the word of God, we read the word of God, and then throughout the day, we just tell people, like, can I share with you what um, I was reading today in the Word of God? Can I share you what our pastor shared on Sunday? Here's the issue. One pastor has said this. The problem is not that the gospel has lost its power. The problem is that the church has lost its audience. It's not that the gospel has lost its power. We have lost our audience. What's the most effective way for us, us to reach the lost? Is the most effective way for us, us to reach the lost is for us to open our doors, ring a bell, and say to the lost, come and get it. We're here. Come and get it. Come and get it. And then finally say, well, if they don't want to come, we're not the ones going to hell, so we'll just come in and have our church service. Or is the best way for us to effectively reach the lost is to take the gospel to them as we live our lives each and every day? Which, which seems most effective? It seems like Jesus knew what he was talking about when he, when he tells us, as you're going, make disciples. As you're going, make much of me. As you're going, teach people about me. We're sharing the word. It's what we're, we're doing as we go out. But then Jesus says this. He says, baptizing. So baptizing, leading other people to show obedience to Christ. Jesus desires every believer to identify with him through obedience. Did you know that there's no such thing in the book of Acts as an unbaptized believer? There's no, there's no, there's no place in the book of Acts where we read of anyone saying, yeah, I'm going to accept Christ, but uh, I'm really not going to be baptized. It's not something I really want to do. And I, I'm good with where I'm at. Listen, ultimately, baptism is our, identif or our initial identification with the life and death of Jesus Christ. It makes no biblical sense for anyone to say, I want Jesus to save me. I just don't want him to tell me how to live. It makes zero biblical sense to say, I want him to save me. I just don't want him to ever tell me what to do. Just think about how absurd that sounds. And let me just go a step further. We are hitting a point in the church where uh, it's probably at an all-time high where people are coming. They're praying prayers. They're walking aisles. They're being baptized, and then they're never coming back. And it's even getting worse because they're doing, they're doing it with their children. They're coming. They're wanting their kids to pray a prayer. They're wanting their kids to be baptized. And the second they're baptized, they're gone. They're gone. And let me just say this. Don't let the pinnacle of your Christian life be found in your baptism. Meaning, don't ever treat baptism like the finish line. According to the word of God, baptism is the starting line. It's a starting line. You don't go and watch your kids compete, and the second they start running, you go, okay, good job, let's go to the car. You don't do that. That's not the point. The point is they start and they finish. And here's the point. We lead people to be baptized as a starting point, as a beginning of obedience to what Christ has called us to do. And notice that Jesus says, we baptize in the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Although the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the 
are three distinct persons. Jesus says we baptize in one name. And it shows us God is one. He is one. Baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says this. We are teaching, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We lift high the obedience of Christ. So as we receive the word, which is happening right now, and it should happen every day, we are also called to spread the word. Every Christian is called to be a transmitting station for gospel truth. Every place we go is an opportunity for the word to take on flesh, your flesh and my flesh. Think about this. Who are we teaching the word of God to? Right now, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about right now. Think about the person, the physical person that had the most to do with you coming to Christ. So think about the one person that had the most to do with you coming to Christ. And then think about this. Think about the the person or the people who taught you, who poured their life into you, who lived out the word in front of you for you to see. And then think about this. How truly blessed are we because of those people? We are so blessed because those people committed to pouring their lives into us. But now the question becomes is this. Who has come to Christ and who has grown in the grace and knowledge of Christ because of you? Who's come to Christ and grown because of me? Are we looking for opportunities to let the power of God's word out? Oh, that we are, that we're teaching and looking for those opportunities because it works. The word of God works. Don't ever let people's rejection of the gospel shake your confidence in the fact that it is still the only way to salvation. Sometimes we think because people reject it that, okay, it must have lost its power. No, it is still has power to save. And then we're called to do this in all nations. So Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. It's apparent when you read even from a surface level that the gospel of Jesus was meant to invade and impact the entire world. Jesus did not say, I am the light of the Gentiles. He said, I'm the light of the world. Jesus did not say, for God so loved the Jews. He said, for God so loved the world. That is the picture of his intent for the world to be saved. And I think about, um, it said that the soldiers of Napoleon, when they went out in their army, they carried in their bags, all of them in their bags, a map that was colored the whole, over the whole map of the world was colored with tricolors of France. And their declaration was the whole world for France. The whole world for France. They were slaves to the idea of taking the whole world for France. And the point is that Jesus has also placed before us a burning vision to see people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation come to him. Here's the beauty. Read Revelation. In the book of Revelation, God's plan of saving people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will be accomplished. God is going to accomplish his mission. The question that we have to ask is this. Will we be a part of the mission? Will we be a part of accomplishing the mission? Where are you right now on the journey? Let me ask a question. Is it possible to be Christians for 5, for 10, for 20, even 50 years? Is it possible to be Christians for 50 years of your life and have never once been a part of the mission of God of taking the gospel to someone else? Is it possible? And the problem is it's not just possible, it's probable with what we have created. Is it possible that many will get to the end of 20 and 30 and 
40 and 50 years of Christianity having done all kind of churchy things, even good things, commanded things, but yet have never, have never produced one person for the kingdom. Is it possible? This is the moment I pray the holy discontent will begin to rise up in our, our hearts. Have you ever intentionally and purposefully poured your life into someone else for the sake of Christ? And please, parents, don't just stop at saying, well, I got my kids saved and they're baptized, so we're good. What about your grandkids? And what about their friends? And what about your neighbors? And what about others? That's the whole point of this, is to keep people continually coming to Christ and growing them in Christ. If Jesus commanded us to make disciples, shouldn't that be the central piece of what we do? The problem is we don't know how to do it. Some of you in here... You, you taught yourself, you grew, you came to church, went to Sunday school, you grew and got in the word and praise God for that. But the problem is many people in church, the way we treat church today is we go pray a prayer, get baptized, we slap them on the back and say, good job, and then we walk away. And what do we think is going to happen? What do we think is going to happen? Do we think they're just going to grow on their own and become Charles Spurgeons and, and the great theologians? No, what's going to happen? They're going to stumble and fall and be outside the church. And then many go, I knew it. I knew they weren't real. I knew. What in the world did you do to keep them? What did you do to help them at all grow in their salvation, to grow in the grace and knowledge? Let me tell you something. A, a few years ago, I was really praying and struggling with this picture of, of what we were doing and what I was doing to make disciples. And I prayed and I prayed and I struggled and I prayed and I asked God to, to lead me. And it just, it just seemed like nothing was happening. And a young man approached me in the midst of probably the worst situation in his life, saying, I think God's doing something in my life. And I said, now's probably not a good time. You deal with what you're dealing with, and maybe we can talk about what's going on. And, and things got worse, and he kept coming and saying, I think God's really calling me and doing a work in my life. And I kept praying, God, send me somebody. God, just send me anybody. And this individual kept coming, and he kept coming. And finally I said, let's go. And I began to meet every single week for over an hour and just pour in and just walk through the word together. Not knowing what God was going to do and how God was going to influence that. But about a year and three months ago, we got to ordain that young man as a pastor here. And then the beautiful thing is now that meeting that just was me and him. Now there's five men that meet together and we pour our lives into each other. And we pour our lives into encouraging and holding accountable and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And let me say this, I love this. I love doing this. I love standing in front of you and proclaiming the word of God. But there is nothing as beneficial to my week as to what happens during that one and a half hours in my office on Sunday afternoons. That is the most beneficial time of my week. It is. It's the most beneficial time of my week. And I, here's, here's the thing. I want that for all of us. So here's what's going to happen. Over the next few weeks, we are going to create as many opportunities that we can possibly create as many times as possible for anyone who might be interested to, to learn what it looks like to walk somebody through a discipleship, um, picture in a discipleship process. And some of you, will. I pray that you'll come in and immediately you'll begin to to. Go and get a few people that you'll walk through the process. Some of you, maybe you've never been through this, and maybe you want to grow, and God's going to do that. He's going to use it to create an opportunity by which one of us will be able to pour into you and others in that way. But here is the point. If we're going to give ourselves to anything as a church, should we not give ourselves to the one thing that Christ commanded us to do? I mean, it just makes sense. 
that we, instead of saying, God, bless this, bless this, bless this, that we go, God, let us give ourselves to the one thing you've already said you will bless. Making disciples of people. So I, I pray that we will just see ourselves plugging into that which Christ has called us to do and seeing what God does through it. So we must carry out the assignment of Christ. And then lastly, third, we must rely on the assurance of Christ. We must rely on the assurance of Christ. As we come to the end of this command in verse 20, we're not left with a question, how is this going to happen? Before the disciples even ask the question, Jesus answers the question. He says, behold, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. Let me ask you this question. Do we really believe the promise is still good? Do you really believe that Jesus is still with us? Okay, three of us do. Okay, the rest of you not so sure, and I'm about to maybe tell you why. It's easy for us to go, yes, I believe Jesus is still with us. Well, then this is where we must see that if the promise of Christ is still good for us, that he will be with us, then the command of Christ is still binding upon us. Meaning, the command of Christ to make disciples goes strictly along with his promise that he would be with us. If you want to understand and if you want to experience the presence of Christ like never before, give yourself, give yourself to walking someone else through the discipleship process. If you do so, you will experience his presence like never before. And if you're not, it could be part of the reason why his presence isn't as hot or strong in you as it once was. There's something about knowing that you're going to stand before people or sit before people and walk through the word of God together that keeps you sharp. It keeps you sharp. It keeps you accountable to the word of God. There's something that's supposed to happen in that way. Do you want God's presence in your life? Will you give yourself to his mission? I just asked the same question. That's the same question because if we want his presence, we will give ourselves to his mission. We will make disciples who make disciples who make disciples um, to all the earth. And what becomes clear in the final words of Jesus is he's telling us, I will be with you. When you give yourself to what I've called you to do, I will be with you. There will not be one step that you will take that I will not be there with you. And there have been times, brothers and sisters, where I've stood before people and I've tried to share the gospel. And as I'm doing it, I'm like, what in the world are you saying? I mean, this is like the internal dialogue. I'm trying to share the gospel with them. As I'm sharing, I'm like, you're doing it wrong. I mean, imagine that internal value. You're, you're trying to point people to Jesus. And in your mind, you're going, what are you talking about? What are you doing? And in those moments, it's so easy to just stop and, and listen to the words of Satan in those moments. But let me encourage you, keep going. Keep going. God doesn't just use you when you connect wholeheartedly with someone else. God uses his word through you. There are times where I stand before you, brothers and sisters, and I don't feel like I connected with one person. And in those times, it's like God's people will come and say, man, that connected with me, like in a way you didn't even know. And I'm like, well, God, you don't really need me. <laughs> it becomes really, really obvious. Um, you know, God just He uses his word. And that is the beautiful thing of what we're called to do. And he's, as we do so, he promises to be with us. There's a story I want to end with, with two, two kind of stories. A story of a, a man named Fretjof Nansen. He was a great Norwegian explorer who set sail in 1896 to penetrate the polar ice cap and kind of study the flow of polar ice. And he was told that he was crazy and this voyage was dangerous and hazardous. So what he did, his plan was he took with him carrier pigeons. 
So each um, stage of the journey, when it got difficult, as soon as he got through it, he would take a pigeon, he would tie a message to the pigeon's leg, and he would let the pigeon go, and the pigeon would go directly to his wife. And in her journal, she writes these words about the pigeon. She said, I was overjoyed each time I found one of these pigeons at my window. When I saw the bird, I knew my husband was alive and well, and he was thinking of me. Over 2,000 years ago, brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the day of Pentecost, you can read about it in Acts 2, he released the heavenly dove. He released the Holy Ghost into the world. And when we become children of God and when we give ourselves to the mission of God, we can know that our God is alive and well. He's thinking of us and he will always be with us and he will always be for us. When we give ourselves to his mission, we will experience his presence like never before, which begs the question, have you ever surrendered to the mission of Christ over your life and over the life of this church? Will you trust the authority of Christ? Will you give yourself to fulfill his plan? Will you make it your aim to make disciples? In the words of the late Puritan Matthew Henry, listen to what he says. He says, it's our duty not to only hold fast, but to hold forth the word of life. Not to only hold fast for our benefit, but to hold it forth as the candlestick holds forth the candle, which makes it appear to advantage all around, or as the luminaries of heaven, which shed their influences far and wide. Brothers and sisters, it's not just our call to hold fast for us. It's our call to hold forth the word of God for others. May today be the day that we give ourselves wholeheartedly to the mission of Christ of making disciples. Let me end this way, and this is going to be weird for just a second. And I promise, hopefully, it won't be weird in just a few minutes. How many of you own a roll of duct tape? So it's, I can see the rednecks in the room. Some of you just got really excited, like, yeah. Got, I got all kind of duct tape, more than you ever know. But we, we know that the purpose and the uses for this magical adhesive seem endless. We love this tape. We, you know, no matter what's broken, mess up your car, get the duct tape. You mess up your kids, get the duct tape. I mean, it fixes everything that we seem to come across yet. Unfortunately, get this. One, we're holding it back there in the sound booth. Yeah, right. Woo. Unfortunately, get this. One of the things that you can't do with duct tape, get this, is seal ducts. You can't seal ducts with duct tape. Max Sherman, a physicist who conducted tests for three months on a variety of sealing materials, noted that duct tape was one of few sealants that failed when repairing air-conditioned HVAC systems. He noted this. He said, we tried many different kinds of sealants as we could get our hands on. Of all the things we tested, only duct tape failed. It failed reliably, and it failed catastrophically. Think about that. Duct tape can do many things. Duct tape can do many great things. It can be an awesome advantage and benefit for us, yet it can't seal ducts. The thing that's literally in its name, it can't do. Let me say this. As disciples of Jesus, we can do many things. We can give ourselves to many amazing things. Yet will we do the one thing that's literally in our name? Will we follow Christ and will we lead others to follow him? Oh, that we would. Oh, that we would for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his mission, for the sake of what he wants over this, his church, that we would give ourselves not to what we want and ask him to bless it, but instead give ourselves to what he has commanded, knowing that he will indeed bless that.
I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to end this time together today. And let's, let's pray together. Father, as we come before you, as we entering this time of invitation to consecration, Lord, we want to seek you. And we want to pray, Father, first and foremost, if there's any in this room today who do not know you, that today would be the day of salvation for them. The day would be the day, God, that they turn from trusting in themselves, and they would instead, Father, turn to you and trust you, Jesus, as Savior and Lord of their lives. Maybe there's some in this room, as we talked about earlier, that have followed Jesus but have never been baptized. May today be a day, Lord, that you put in their hearts and lives the desire to be obedient to you and to begin the process of pursuing baptism according to your word. For others of us, God, we pray for a holy discontent by which we begin to look at our lives, Lord, and begin to ask the question, are we really carrying out your mission? Are we really doing what was on the heart of our Savior? Are we really giving ourselves to the thing that Jesus, you said that you would bless and that your presence would be um, near and with us forever as we do it? Lord, just show us what that looks like. And Lord, as we try to plan pathways for which people to get involved in this process, God, we just pray for wisdom. We pray for opportunities to see more and more people grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.